Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to the light for everyone what is in plan, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Thank you for that uh, reading. I appreciate that. It's good to be with you. My name is Steve Porter. My wife, Alicia, and I have been here at Grace for uh, many years now. And every once in a while, I have the opportunity to stand up here in front of you uh, like this and uh, think together about God's Word. So I want to do that this morning. And why don't we open uh, with uh, prayer uh, for God's help. So, Lord, here we are, and uh, we gather together as your people and we, we come here, Lord, at some level because uh, we know uh, we need your help and we need each other's help to live our lives uh, as your followers in this world. So, Lord, be with us. May your spirit uh, take your scripture and apply it to our hearts and minds this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, have you ever he- heard an unbelievable story. Uh, maybe it's uh, too good to be true. It's, it's unbelievable. Maybe it, it's too, um, too horrible to be true. It's unbelievably tragic. Uh, I, I teach theology at Bible University, so every once in a while I get some unbelievable excuses uh, from my students. Um, now, back in the day, it used to be that the dog ate, you know, our homework, but uh, now a lot of assignments are done on uh, computer, digital form. They're uploaded online. So not too many dogs eating uh, assignments anymore, but a lot of laptops are stolen. 
uh, computers crash. Oftentimes the day before an assignment's due, I find that there's a, a rash of laptop thefts um, in, in my uh, neck of the woods. So, and then every once in a while I have a student, it's not that any one of his or her excuses are so unbelievable, but it's just that all semester long, it seems like every time an assignment's due, there is something horrible happens, an accident, a family tragedy, and you start to think to yourself, how many uncles does this person have? You know, it's, uh, and you want to be compassionate, but you're kind of thinking, is this really true? This seems unbelievable. I had, a, I had a student recently that was like that all semester. It seemed like every time an assignment was due, some new tragedy struck. And it was right up till finals week. And uh, the exam was, was coming that Thursday. And sure enough, I get an email from him. And he says, is there any way I can uh, take the exam later? And I said, well, yeah, what, what happened? And, and he, he referenced a, a national tragedy. It was, a, it was in the news, and, and it, it happened in another part of the country. If I named it, you would remember it. And it was all over the news, and he, he wasn't from that city, but he was from a different city, and he knew somebody, and, and it seemed unbelievable. But what are you supposed to say? So I said, okay, yeah, you can take the exam another time. And this probably wasn't one of my best uh, teaching moments, but I, I, I Googled uh, the, the tragedy to see if I could really piece together his story because he'd give me enough details that I thought, I think I could figure out if this is really true. And it was. It was unbelievably true. He was connected to this tragedy. The reason I mention something being unbelievable is because as we turn to Ephesians 3 today, uh, what we're seeing Paul talk about really is the unbelievability of the gospel. It's, it's unbelievably real. It's, it's unbelievably good. It's unbelievably gracious. So I want to look at that with you this morning. If you've been with us, we've been in the book of Ephesians, and uh, our co-lead pastor, Daniel Long, has been leading us through this text. And we're in Ephesians chapter 3, and you're in your, uh, the Bible's under your chair it's page 977, or if you have a Bible app or your own Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 3, because I'd like to look at it together. You know, when we come to Scripture, one of the, one of the questions I think we want to ask is, what does God intend His people to understand from this text that they couldn't have figured out on their own? What does God intend for the Christians in Ephesus and, and for us to understand that we couldn't have figured out on our own. Because one way to understand what Scripture is, is Scripture is God's revelation of Himself, of who we are, of Christ, of salvation. God is revealing to us things that we wouldn't have been able to figure out on our own. Because there's lots of things we can figure out on our own, right? There's, uh, God has created a stable world that's predictable and through reflection and observation and hypothesizing and testing those hypotheses, Eric Churchill, we can come to discover things about the world, right? This is sometimes what we call, I've got to get my clicker out, general revelation. Uh, general revelation refers to truths about human persons and the world that can be discovered because God made the physical world to be a stable, predictable environment, and he equipped human minds with the capacities to reflect, observe, and learn from experience. There's lots we can understand about the world, about ourselves, from general revelation. It's wisdom. It's important. 
But there are some things, no matter how long we reflected, no matter how many experiments we did, we just wouldn't understand fully who God is. We wouldn't understand our true predicament. We wouldn't understand the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is why we call scripture special revelation. Special revelation is given to God's people at particular times, particular places, encoded in the language and concepts of those times and places, and deposited in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures as a testimony to who God is, who we are, what life's about, where we're headed, how God has provided the help we need through Jesus, the Spirit, and the church. So when we come to scripture, we're we're saying, God, what is it that we wouldn't have been able to figure out on our own? What is it that the church in Ephesus needed to understand? And so if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins here and he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now you'll notice if you're reading the ESV that there's a, a long dash there. I think it's called an M dash. And that's, that wasn't in the original Greek, but the translators realized that Paul is about ready to go on a tangent here. Uh, this is a digression of Paul's thought. He, he wasn't planning to say this. We know he wasn't planning to say it because if you look ahead to verse 14, he picks back up for this reason. It's the exact same phrase that he starts in verse 1. For this reason. So Paul is about ready to pray the prayer that he prays in verse 14 and following, but he stops short. And it looks like what causes him to stop short is is how he identified himself, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And he says, oh, do they understand that I'm in prison right now in Rome because of my ministry to the Gentiles? He's not sure they understand exactly why he's in jail. Paul is writing this letter from prison in Rome. And it turns out he is indeed in prison because of his ministry to the Gentiles. If you go back to Acts chapter 20, I think it is, you'll see where Paul got in trouble in in Jerusalem because of his ministry and preaching to the Gentiles and eventually ended up in prison in Rome because of that. So he is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of of the Gentiles, and he wants them to understand what he meant by that. And so he goes into this tangent, this digression. And one of the things we notice about this digression is that he is referring to the gospel as a mystery. If you look at um, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Again in verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Uh, He goes on in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Paul uses the term mystery six times in Ephesians. Four of those times are in these 13 verses. Now we have to be careful with this word mystery. Because we're liable to think, especially if we're talking about God and Christianity and the Bible, that if something's a mystery, that means it's incomprehensible. It's beyond our understanding. It's the cloud of unknowing. It's this mysterious fog that we can't really understand. We can't really figure it out. But of course, there is another sense to the word mystery, even in English, right? We talk about uh, a mystery is something that is capable of being understood, but, but we don't 
know it yet. It's, it's, a, it's a murder mystery. It's a whodunit. There is an answer to the question, but we don't have enough evidence to figure out exactly what the right answer is. I think of the game Clue. Have you ever played the game Clue? I mean, it's either uh, Professor Plum with the knife in the kitchen, or it's Colonel Mustard with the candelabra in the sauna or whatever it is, right? And, and, and the answer the answer is out there. It's in that little envelope. It's not an incomprehensible mystery. It's, there is an answer to the question. We just don't know if we have enough clues, enough evidence to know for sure. But there's more or less plausible answers. And that's the kind of mystery that Paul's talking about here. If you notice in verse 3 how the mystery was made known to me. Again, in in verse 6, he's going to tell us what the mystery is. This mystery is, and he goes on to tell us what it is. In verse 4, he talks about his insight into the mystery. In verse 9, he wants to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. Paul's not talking about something incomprehensible here. The gospel is not an incomprehensible mystery. In fact, it's unbelievably real. It's a reality. Uh, One commentator said this. I have to put my glasses back on here. The word mystery in modern speech means a sublime or unclear truth that's marveled at but only partly understood. That's our one sense of it. But he says the Greek mysterion, however, describes any divine or heavenly reality which is regarded as hidden or secret and can be made known only when revealed. By the gods. Mysterion appears 21 times in Paul's letters out of a total of 27 New Testament occurrences. Usually it points not to some future event hidden in God's plan, but to his decisive action in Christ here and now. I think it's important that we understand that the gospel isn't incomprehensible, it's a reality. One of the things we're liable to do if we start thinking that Christianity or Jesus or the gospel is somehow beyond our understanding is that when we start to disagree about things, we just say, well, none of us really know anyway, right? It's all a big mystery. The problem with that is you can't really live in light of a fog. You can't really integrate a fuzzy, vague, incomprehensible thing into your daily life. Eugene Peterson is talking about a sermon he preached once early on in his pastoral career. And uh, he preached his sermon and he was standing by the back door greeting people as they left. A good Presbyterian uh, pastor greets people on the way out the door. And one of, the, one of his congregants went out and uh, the congregant said, Now those were mighty fine words, pastor, but now we have to get back to the real world, don't we? And Peterson said he wanted to say, I thought we were in the most real world. The world revealed by God in Christ by the Spirit. This is fundamental reality. This reality changes all other worlds. This is the most real world. So one of the things Paul reveals to us here about the good news of Jesus Christ is it's unbelievably real. But there's a second thing we learn from Paul's message here. And it's not just that the scriptures are unbelievably, or the gospel is unbelievably real. But it's also unbelievably good. I should get rid of my notes. 
The, 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 the printer ran out of black ink this morning, so, so my notes are printed in color, which turned out to be red. Will Rogan suggested maybe they were the red-lettered edition. These were all the words of, of Jesus, but I don't think it we, we notice this word grace is used a few times in this passage as well. Paul talks about in verse 7, for instance, that this is the gift of God's grace. And there's an unbelievable goodness about this grace. You know, the, the word gospel itself is kind of a strange word. It comes from the Old English. Uh, good spell or good news, which is based in the Greek, euangelion. That's, uh, Daniel used Greek a few weeks back, so I felt like I could do it too. The, the euangelion, I, I like that Greek word because the, the prefix eu, it means well or good, like euphoria or eulogy. And euangelion, angelion's where we get our word for angel. So it's, it's not good angel, but remember what the angels are, they're, they're messengers, right? So the euangelion is the good message, the good news. The gospel really is good news. It's about reconciliation. Uh, Earlier in chapter 2, Paul says in, in verse 18, For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He goes on in the, in the, the verses we're looking at to talk about how we are co-heirs. Jews and Greeks are co-heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise. We were once strangers, aliens, he says, but now we've been brought near. We've been given access. It's reconciliation. This is good news. We've been, we've been reconciled with the most important person in the universe, God the Father. And it's not just a, a vertical reconciliation, but it's a horizontal reconciliation as well. Paul says in this passage, that, again, that we are co-heirs. We are fellow partakers. We are of the same body, Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews. This fundamental ethnic, cultural, religious difference was, was in a sense undermined by this deeper fundamental commonality and unity that in reconciling to the Father, we now become family. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, in the ancient Near East, uh, many scholars say the sibling relationship, brother-sister, was the most important social relationship, even more important than father-child, because siblings were total same blood. Father-child, well, only half-dad, half-mom, right? Husband-wife, not blood-related at all. But siblings, full-blood relation. And that's the metaphor that the Scriptures use to talk about our new relationship in Christ. We're reconciled as beloved children of the Father, and, and that reconciles us to one another. Elsewhere, Paul says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male or female. It's not that these differences go away, but these differences no longer divide us because these differences don't define us. 
We're defined by something far deeper. We are beloved children of God. That's good news. That, that the, the, the things that keep us apart have been undermined. If you've ever been not just a stranger and an alien to God, but a stranger and on the outside of the in-group, in, in or whatever the, the people group is, that's, that's the, the cool group, right? All of that's been obliterated because our status is now rooted in our identity as the children of God, and that makes us brothers and sisters. Now, again, it's easy to say it's harder to live into, but this is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is unbelievably good. Dallas Willard, who uh, was one of my teachers at the University of Southern California, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he says this, my hope is to gain a fresh hearing for Jesus. And we might just want to add to that and his gospel. Especially among those who already believe they understand him. In his case, quite frankly, presumed familiarity has led to unfamiliarity. Unfamiliarity has led to contempt. And contempt has led to profound ignorance. That's an interesting flow of circumstances, presumed familiarity. You think you understand something and you think you understand it so well that you end up not really understanding it. And because you think you understand it but you don't understand it, that can lead to contempt. This doesn't make any sense. It's not working the way I thought. And when we start to contempt something like Jesus or the gospel, eventually we push it away. And I think one of the things we need to reclaim about Jesus and the gospel is it's unbelievably real, it's unbelievably good, and as I said before, it's also unbelievably gracious. That's the other message we get here from Paul. He talks about this grace that's at work in verse 7. He says, which was given to me by the working of his power. This grace that's at work in Paul, this grace that's at work in God bringing the gospel, the good news to us in Jesus, the gospel, the good news is unbelievably grace-filled. Now, grace is another one of those words that we have to be careful of. Grace for Paul is always God in action, Grace is God doing something on our behalf that we don't deserve, that we could not accomplish on our own. Grace is God acting on our behalf in a manner we don't deserve to accomplish something we cannot accomplish on our own. Think about someone walking down the street. Maybe they have an armful of papers and books and, and, and they drop them. And the, the papers are, are kind of all over the place. And, and some passerby uh, bends down and starts chasing down papers that are blowing in the wind. That, that, that person who dropped the papers might turn to the passerby and say, thank you, that was so gracious of you. See, that, that, that passerby is, is acting on that other person's behalf. In, in a manner they don't deserve, to accomplish something that would have been hard for them to accomplish on our own. And that's us, right? We're, we're walking along life and we just drop everything. We're all over the place. And, and God stoops down in Jesus 
And, and he gathers us up into him and into his people. He, he accomplishes something on our behalf that we don't deserve, that we couldn't accomplish on our own. That's his grace. And Paul particularly is aware of this because Paul, as we know, he was a persecutor of the church. Paul stood by affirming the stoning of Stephen. Paul, Paul says that he went to Christian homes and he beat and imprisoned Christians. Then on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, my gosh, this grace that's been given to me. How in the world could I have been given this commission to the Gentiles? He calls himself here the least of the saints. In Timothy, he calls himself the chief of sinners. He saw himself as number one on the list of sinners and last on the list of saints. And he says, but but, but God, by his grace, reached down to me and gathered me up. I didn't deserve it. And God's grace is active in Paul's life. It's an empowering presence. Let me go back to this other quote. F.F. Bruce is a New Testament scholar. He says, in calling his commission to preach the gospel the gift of God's grace... Paul sees in it one facet of that grace, which transformed him from a persecutor into a grateful recipient of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Repeatedly, he speaks of his apostolic ministry as the grace of God given to me. Both in God's initial call and in the subsequent enablement which he received throughout his career, he experienced the operation of his power His power which operates mightily within me, as he said to the Colossians. This grace that Paul was aware of, this grace that Paul himself was given, was now given to the Gentiles in Ephesus. It was God in action on their behalf in Christ Jesus. Part of what's so gracious about this is is not that the Gentiles are included... That was always the plan. It had been given to Abraham that that through Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. It wasn't that the Gentiles were included. is that they were included as fellow heirs. That they were included with the Jews and no one had to meet any conditions. It was a law-free offer of reconciliation with God. The conditions had already been met in Jesus. The only thing that was needed was trust, was faith in Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is is unbelievably real. It's unbelievably good. Reconciliation with the Father. Reconciliation is available for one another. And it's unbelievably grace-filled. There's no conditions we have to meet. All we have to do is receive this good news of reconciliation with the Father and reconciliation with one another. Um, But I've been using this word unbelievable. And while the good news, as Paul shows us here, is unbelievably real and unbelievably good and unbelievably gracious, it's also unbelievable in a different way in the sense of it being hard to believe, difficult 
to accept. One of the things that can be easily forgotten is that uh, the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians were a minority. Um, scholars tell us that about the time Paul wrote this letter, early 60s AD, there would have been about 250,000 people in the city of Ephesus. We don't know exactly how many Ephesian Christians there are, but the Ephesian church wasn't that old. It was only a few years old. It would be very generous to say there were probably a thousand Christians in Ephesus. The Christians in Ephesus, and that wasn't just in one church, that was the entire city. The Christians in Ephesus were were probably less than 0.5% of the population of that city. They were surrounded by people who didn't believe in the reality of the gospel. They were surrounded by people who didn't see Jesus' message as good news. They were surrounded by people and a culture that did not understand the grace-filled reality. It was hard to believe. In fact, the Ephesian church shows up in Revelation, the book of Revelation. It's the first of the seven books that Jesus, first of the seven churches that Jesus addresses. And the Ephesians church, they're, they're commanded to return to their first love. They ended up losing something. The the unbelievability of the good news of Jesus had over time faded away. Paul himself in Corinthians talks about how the, the gospel of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. The, the unbelievable reality, the unbelievable goodness, the unbelievable graciousness of the gospel can also be really hard to maintain belief in. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, increase our faith. Help us to believe more fully. Help us to believe more confidently. Jesus actually coined a term for this. He called it little faith. O ye of little faith, he was often saying to his disciples. Little faith is this idea that I I, I believe helped my unbelief. In fact, I want to leave us with a practice this morning. One of the things I've really appreciated about uh, Daniel's last few sermons is he's, he's always left us with a practice. And I think that's important because part of what we do on Sunday mornings is we, we come together uh, to point each other to the rest of the week. We, we come together to strategize about, okay, so how are we going to live out this Christ life, this real good, grace-filled life. How are we going to live that out this afternoon? What are we going to do tomorrow morning? And practices are one of the ways that we can take what we're doing here on Sunday and, and say, this is one way we can begin to take this more and more into each and every day. So here's a, here's a practice. The practice is a prayer. Uh, the book of Ephesians is, is filled with prayers. We're not going to do a prayer from Ephesians, but it is a prayer. It's a prayer from Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9, where a man came to Jesus and he said, If it's possible, Lord, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, "Uh, All things are possible to those who believe or have faith. And then the man says in Mark 9, I think it's verse 24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
That's a very honest prayer. He's saying, Lord, I believe that you can do it. I, I put my faith in you, my trust in you, but I'm also aware that there's a part of me that's not sure. There's a part of me that doubts. There's a part of me that, that would like to believe more, help my unbelief, but, but I'm really not there yet. Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe in the reality of your gospel. Help the parts of me that doubt. Help the parts of me that will forget tomorrow. Lord, I, I, I believe in the goodness of life with you, but help those parts of me that, that think I can find goodness in other ways. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe that it's grace-filled. I believe you've chosen me and it's nothing to do with my merit, but help the parts of me that still think somehow you love me more when I'm good or you don't love me as much when I'm bad. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's a good prayer to pray. It's a good practice to pray that prayer as you're going through your day. Lord, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. E even as we go to communion, even as we sing these worship songs, sometimes the, the, the words of the music are so aspirational. They're, they're so glorious. And under our breath, we can be saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I want to be more there. But it's unbelievable for me. I can't quite believe it fully, Lord. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So as you uh, maybe drive home from church this afternoon, or you drive to school or work or walk to school tomorrow, uh, as you sit down with your family for a meal, Lord, we believe. Help those parts of us that are still catching up. They're still growing up. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let me uh, pray that with you right now. So maybe just in your own silent prayer, you might think about your response to the unbelievable reality or truth that through faith, in Jesus, we have access. We can come before the Father with boldness and confidence. And maybe just in your own silent prayer, just say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. As we ponder the, the goodness of life with Jesus, that we're reconciled. That nothing stands between us. We're no longer strangers and aliens with the Father. We've been brought near. We're blessed in the beloved, Paul says. We're beloved children of God. And we're reconciled with one another. Perhaps just in your own silent prayer, say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. As we think about the the graciousness of God that he reaches down to collect us up in him and holds us together in him. And it's, it's grace. It has nothing to do with what we've done 
or what we didn't do. We might just want to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So, Father, here we are. Jesus, Holy Spirit. Just like those Ephesian Christians, we are struck by the unbelievability of the good news that you've brought to us, the unbelievable grace and reality and goodness. Lord, as we spend time together this morning, as we go from this place, we want to say to you, Lord, we believe. Please help our unbelief. In your name, amen.